Welcome to Bakersfield First Assembly of God's podcast. We are so excited that you joined us today. Our lead pastor, Pastor James Lair, is fired up and ready to preach. I hope you enjoy this sermon. We continue with Zechariah's fifth vision in Zechariah chapter 4, verse 1. Then the angel who talked with me returned and wakened me as a man is wakened from his sleep. He asked me, what do you see? I answered, I see a golden lampstand with a bowl at the top and seven lights on it with seven channels to the lights. Also, there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. I asked the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? He answers, do you not know what these are? No, my Lord, I replied. So he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. Verse 7. What are you, O mighty mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become level ground. And then he will bring out the capstone to shouts of, God bless it, God bless it. And then the word of the Lord came to me, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple, and his hands will also complete it. And then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. Who despises the day of small things? Men will rejoice when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord which range throughout the earth. And then I asked the angel, what are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? And again I asked him, what are these two olive branches beside the two gold pipes that pour out golden oil? He replied, do you not know what these are? No, my Lord. I said, so he said, these are the two who are anointed to serve the Lord of all the earth. The first point I want to make this morning is this. Number one, God moves mighty mountains. The governor Zerubbabel faced the impossible task of rebuilding the temple. And it compared to the impossible task of trying to move a mountain or level a mountain. I know that many of us are facing some impossible tasks as well. And I hope you will find comfort from this, that God can move your mountain. Wiersbe Bible Commentary says this, With their limited resources, completing the temple must have looked to those Jews as impossible as moving a mountain. But God told Zerubbabel that he would, by God's power, level the mountain and make it a plain. What mountains was Zerubbabel facing? Discouragement among the people. Opposition from the enemies around them, poor crops, an unstable economy, people not obeying God's law, problems not too different from those the people of God have faced throughout the centuries. And so what mountains are you facing? Discouragement, opposition, financial struggles, whatever they may be, we may feel overwhelmed with our problems and challenges. But like Zerubbabel and the people of Israel's day, We may be facing an impossible task. Is there a mountain in your life that needs to be moved or leveled to the ground? I want you to know that we have a promise in Scripture that God will move mountains. We see this first in Isaiah chapter 40. A voice of one calling, In the desert prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. We know this was prophetic of the coming of John the Baptist. Verse 4, every valley shall be raised up and every mountain and hill made low and the rough ground will 
shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all mankind together will see it, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. God moves and levels mountains, but we also have a responsibility. Trust me, only God can move your mountain. Only God is powerful enough to make it level ground before you. However, though God has the power, we still have part of the responsibility. And so we see in this context of Matthew 17 that the disciples could not cast a demon out of a certain little boy. And so they, they didn't, weren't able to succeed. And so they came to Jesus and said, what were we doing wrong? How come you could cast out that demon, but we couldn't? And Jesus answers them in Matthew 17, 20. He replied, because you have so little faith. I tell you the truth, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Now the Lord is speaking figuratively and symbolically that whatever mountain we are facing, whatever obstacle is in our way, that if we have just the tiniest of faith, all it takes is a little bit of faith to move a huge obstacle, to do something impossible in your life. God has the power, but we need to have the faith. That's our responsibility. Do we believe God can move our mountains? That's the challenge. We have to believe it if the mountain's going to move. We have a responsibility. We have a part to play in this. And when the Lord moves those mountains, number two, we must shout grace. And so it said that God was going to move a mountain in front of Zerubbabel and he was going to bring out the capstone of the temple. Remember, they were rebuilding the temple and the final stone is the capstone, it's the last crowning achievement. And so God was saying, it's going to happen. This temple is going to be rebuilt. It had taken 20 years, 20 years for this temple to be rebuilt. But God said it's going to happen. And when that final stone is set in place, the people need to shout, grace. What is the meaning of this word grace? Look at UBS Old Testament handbook the Hebrew word translated grace has a variety of meanings. One of these is indeed grace in the sense of God's favor, and another is grace in the sense of gracefulness or beauty. So this, this Hebrew word is heen, and it means all of these things. In some translations, the NIV, it means God bless it. But it also means favor and beauty and blessing and grace. And the day was going to come when the people would overcome all the obstacles, all the impossibilities, and they were going to see the temple built and that final stone was put in place. And when they saw it, they would shout grace. And it says in Jameson Fawcett Brown commentary, all mountain light obstacles in Zerubbabel's way shall be removed so that the crowning top stone shall be put on and the completion of the work be acknowledged as holy of grace, grace. The repetition expresses grace from first to last. Thus the Jews were urged to pray perseveringly and earnestly that the same grace which completed it may also preserve it. How many know that we're saved by grace and we're kept saved by grace? It's always God's grace from beginning to end. 
And so when God moves that mountain in your life, we need to remember to thank him for it. We need to speak of his favor. When God does something in your life, when he does the impossible, when he moves things, the obstacles out of your way, when he clears your path, whatever may be holding you back, we need to be ready to shout grace. Now, we're not used to shouting because, you know, we're in church and all, and we're all dignified and religious. But bless God, how many of you know if you're at a football game, you'll be doing some shouting? I was doing some shouting when the Seahawks lost this last week, and it wasn't pretty. We need prayer for the Seattle Seahawks, or at least for your pastor. But sometimes we feel okay about shouting. You know, the Bible says part of our praise is shouting. And we need to shout grace, even if it hasn't happened yet. In fact, we need to shout it by faith. That whatever you're facing and whatever you're going through, whatever mountain stands in your way, we're going to speak grace. And God's going to do it. Because when God comes through for us, and he will, we need to be ready. Even before it's done. Matthew Henry's commentary says, What comes from the grace of God may in faith be committed to the grace of God. For he will not forsake the work of his own hands. I mean, you know, we want God to do the work. Unless the Lord builds the house, we labor in vain. God can move the mountain, but we must be ready to shout grace. It won't be by our might, it won't be by our power, but by God's spirit and through his grace from beginning to end, we need his grace. No matter how long you've been a Christian, I mean, you know, it's still amazing grace. How sweet the sound. We all need his grace. And so we need to speak grace into our lives, into our circumstances. And we must, and so I want to ask you, what has God done in your life? What has he done for you? What prayers have been answered that warrant a shout of grace from you? Think about that. What has God done? All the good things. We can easily come up with difficulties and problems in our life, but the challenge for us is to come up with the good things that God has done and to speak grace to those things because they are beautiful in his eyes. And also we must know this, number three, God finishes what he starts. The temple was started and then it stopped because they had obstacles, they had opposition, they had people against them, they had discouragement. But it finally finished after 20 years, the temple was completed. God said that temple was gonna be built. And if God says it, it's gonna happen. Maybe not in our time frame. Maybe not when we would like to, but God always finishes what he starts. We don't always do that, right? How many projects do we have halfway done or things in our life that aren't complete? But if God has said it, he will do it and it will be finished. And so he's trying to encourage Zerubbabel and he's telling him that you laid the foundation, you're going to place the capstone. You yourself, Zerubbabel, are going to have that final stone added to the temple. Because he started it, God's going to use him to finish it. And this was God's declaration. He declared this is going to be done. And we have the same promise in Scripture for our lives. Look at Philippians 1, 4 through 6. In all my prayers for you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, 
that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. God's still working on us. How many know you're not done? You're not complete. There are still things you got to work on. There are still projects God's got going on in your house. It's like he's renovating, you know, putting in a new kitchen. And in the meantime, you're living out of coolers. You know, our life is like that sometimes. We're, we're in process. It's going to be beautiful once it's done. Once Jesus returns, he's going to make all things right. But we are in process right now. God is working on it. And, and we got to let God do the work. Remember, he, he does the work. We have the faith. We believe. We trust him. And so be confident that God started something in your life. And he is going to finish it. There's, there are things that are going on that we feel like, will I ever get over this? Will I ever conquer this? Will I ever be free of this? But you need to have faith knowing that if God started it, he'll finish it. Now, sometimes we've started it. And we can't expect God to finish it because sometimes we start things God didn't want started. Make sure it's the Lord that has started it because what feels unfinished in your life? Is there, is there anything you know God has called you to do and you need to obey. You need to take that step. He started the work, but we need to respond to what he's calling us to do. I think this is also a scripture we can have faith in for any kind of prodigal in your life. Your children, your grandchildren, siblings, whatever it may be. How I many you know God started a work in them? He is gonna finish it. And it's our responsibility to have the faith to know that God's going to bring them home again. God's going to do the work. Hold on to this scripture. Hold on to this promise. And the work the Lord begins in us usually starts out small. It starts out simple and seemingly insignificant. However, it is critical how we respond. If God's going to start something in your life, it's usually a small thing. It begins small. But look at this, number four. Our responsibility is do not despise the day of small beginnings. We may say, God, this is no big deal. I want you to do great things in my life. I want to do great things for you. I hear people say that all the time. I want to do great things for God. I hear young ministers saying, I'm going to do great things for God. I want you to understand, before you can do great things for God, you need to do small things for God. You can't skip that. You can't just say, I'm going to do great things. Not until you've learned to do small things well. And if you learn to do small things, then God gives you little bigger things and little bigger things. Isn't that what we do with our children? If they can't clean their room, we're not going to let them drive a 2,000-pound car, are we? If they can't make their bed, then they're not ready for bigger responsibilities. God does the same with you and me. He starts things in our life. They're small at the beginning. A great work of God always starts out small. And the people of Israel were embarrassed. They were discouraged by the small size of the temple. Some of them had seen Solomon's temple in all its glory. And so this new temple wasn't even close to that. Wasn't even made of the same material. Didn't have all the wealth and all the jewels and all that went with it. It was so small and so insignificant. The Life Application Bible says this, many of the older Jews were disheartened 
when they realized this new temple would not match the size and splendor of the previous temple built during King Solomon's reign. But bigger and more beautiful is not always better, right? Bigger is not always better. What you do for God may seem small and insignificant at the time, but God rejoices in what is right, not necessarily in what is big. I mean, you know, just because it's big, it doesn't mean it's right. Just because it's big doesn't mean it's God. Just because a ministry is big or a business is big doesn't mean they're right with the Lord. Sometimes we confuse that. We think, well, if they're getting huge blessings, then everything may be okay. Not necessarily. What you do for God may seem small and insignificant at the time. But God rejoices in what is right, not necessarily what is big. Be faithful in the small opportunities. Begin where you are and do what you can and leave the results to God. Man, that'll preach. I think it just did. That's how God works. He starts with small things. And it's in the beginning, it's simple, but that's part of the test. You see, God gives us a small thing to prove ourselves. And if we prove ourselves, then he increases the opportunity. And we see this in Matthew 25, verse 20, when the three servants were given a various amount of talents and they were to invest them and they were to multiply them and it says the man who had received the five talents brought the other five master he said you entrusted me with five talents see I have gained five more his master replied well done good and faithful servant you have been faithful with a few things I will put you in charge of many things come and share your master's happiness this is a biblical principle if we're faithful in the small things, God can trust us in bigger things and greater things. And we're not ready to do great things until we've learned to be faithful in small things. Wearsby Bible Commentary says, to some of the Jews, the project was but a small thing in comparison to Solomon's grand temple. But we must look at God's work through his eyes and not the eyes of the people of the world. Great oaks grow out of small acorns and great harvests from small seeds. Bible history is the record of God using small things. Never despise the day of small things, for God is glorified in small things and uses them to accomplish great things. Think of all the small things God used. Five loaves and fishes, right? He used small things to accomplish great miracles. And he can do the same in your life and my life. Whether great or small, there is something we need for the task. What has God called you to? What has the Lord prepared for you? What is he asking you to do? What is your mission? What is your purpose? Whatever it is, you need this. Number five, the anointing. Whatever God has called you to do, whatever ministry, whatever it may be, you need the anointing. You can't do this on your own, and you dare not try. We need the anointing. In his vision, Zechariah saw two olive trees and two olive branches. And what did these two things represent? The New Living Translation Study Bible says the two heavenly beings were literally the two sons of olive oil. I want to say Popeye in here for some reason, but this... 
This is how it reads in the Hebrew. They're two sons of olive oil who were anointed with oil as part of their commissioning. So under the leadership of Yeshua, which was Joshua, and Zerubbabel, the religious and civic leaders of Jerusalem, after the people returned from exile, the temple of the Lord was rebuilt and worship was restored in Jerusalem. Joshua was the high priest. He was one of those olive trees. And Zerubbabel was the governor, the civic leader. And neither one of them, and even together, they could not fulfill their purpose without the anointing. They needed to be anointed if they were going to rebuild that temple. You need to be anointed by God if you're going to do what God's called you to do. And I'm going to tell you, God often calls you to do the impossible. And you're going to need him, and you're going to need his anointing if you're going to complete it. And so, what is this anointing? We hear it all the time in Christian circles. Oh, man, he had the anointing. He preached under the anointing. Man, I feel the, the anointing. I know, as much as I study and prepare for a sermon, I always close it with prayer, and I say, God, I need your anointing. Because this is just words without your anointing. And so what does it mean? Let's look it up. In Nelson's Illustrated Bible Dictionary, anointing means to authorize or set apart a person for a particular work or service. So that's the first thing the anointing means. It's someone was separated and set apart for a particular purpose. And the anointed person belonged to God in a special sense. In the New Testament, all who are Christ's disciples are said to be anointed. Guess what? If you believe in Jesus, you're anointed. You are God's very own, set apart and commissioned for service. In the New Testament, anointing was frequently used in connection with healing. And the Holy Spirit's activities in a believer's life are pictured in terms of associated with anointing. Anointing in the New Testament also refers to the anointing of the Holy Spirit, which brings understanding. This anointing is not only for kings, priests, and prophets or pastors. It is for everyone who believes in Jesus Christ. Everyone who believes can have the anointing of God. The anointing occurs physically with a substance such as oil, myrrh, or balsam. But this is also a spiritual anointing as the Holy Spirit anoints a person's heart and mind with the love and truth of God. And so this, this definition includes two scripture references about the anointing. Let's look those up. First in Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1, you'll know this one. This is what Jesus fulfilled. He got up and read this from Isaiah and said, it's now fulfilled. This is his, anoint, his ministry. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me. Now I want you to know that this was the ministry of Jesus, but it's also our ministry as a church. And so the spirit of the Lord is on BFA. The spirit of the Lord is on James Lair. Make it personal. This is your calling. This is your ministry. Because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. How many know God wants us to set people free from prisons of darkness and addiction and those things? That's the call of the church. It's our responsibility to set people free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. How many know that we are living in time of God's favor, but there's a day of vengeance coming, and we need to warn people about that, the end times. 
So this is the ministry. This is what the church should be preaching. This is what we as Christians should be living. And to comfort all those who mourn. And to provide for those who grieve in Zion. We're responsible to help people who are in sorrow. And help them through their grief. To bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. The garment of praise instead of the spirit of heaviness or despair. And they will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. And they will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. And they will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. I see that in these generational curses that pass on from generation to generation. How many of you know God wants to break those generational curses and the, the lives that have been destroyed and ruined need to be renewed and rebuilt? This is the ministry of the church. This is what every church is to be doing. I want, you to, I want us to make it personal. This is our calling as Bakersfield First Assembly. We're, we're anointed to preach good news, not just bad news. Let's, let's preach some good news. We are anointed to bind up the brokenhearted. People are, people are going to come in here broken. And we're here to bring healing and bind up the brokenhearted. We're to proclaim freedom for the captives, release prisoners from darkness. Our church has been set apart to proclaim the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance that is coming. We, we need to preach the whole gospel, the whole truth of God's word. We've been called to comfort those who mourn and grieve and to exchange, and this is, this is so awesome, to exchange beauty for ashes. Ashes represent death and sorrow and loss. And there are people that will come in these doors totally lost. And we have the privilege of bringing beauty into their life. And we're here to help people take off the spirit of heaviness and put on the garment of praise. I want to tell you, we don't sing songs just for fun. We don't sing songs just because, you know, everybody else does it. There's a power and there's a purpose in praise and worship. When you put on the garment of praise, the spirit of heaviness has to leave you. But you got to enter in. I'm grateful that we have Nathan who, who leads us into the presence of God. But don't stay on the outside. Lift your hands. Sing, sing the song. Clap your hands. Enter in. Because when you step into that, when you put on that garment of praise and worship, then the spirit of heaviness has to go. And so that's what the church, that's why we sing songs. That's why we praise and worship. Because praise has power behind it. And we're anointed to rebuild and restore and renew ruined lives and devastated lives. And we can't do this without the anointing. I'm telling you, whatever your ministry is, if you're an usher, a teacher, you work with children's ministry, you need to ask the Lord for the anointing. It doesn't matter what you do. If you're a greeter, if you work behind the scenes, it doesn't matter. You need the anointing for your ministry. And so I encourage you, ask the Lord, Lord, I, I can't do this on my, my own. Would you anoint me by your Holy Spirit? And we have been given this anointing by Jesus Christ. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. 
For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. God has anointed you and me to do what he's called us to do. This time we're going to take communion. And I want to tie this message into communion today. I think it's really important that whenever we take communion, we do it with purpose. We do it with intentionality and not just go through the motions. I know this is just a symbol, but how many know the Holy Spirit is here? It's just, it's just not a ritual or a religious exercise. This is meaningful. And I believe that some of us today have a mountain in front of us, an obstacle. It's like we can't overcome this. We've tried. We've tried to climb the mountain. We've tried to go around the mountain. We've tried to go under the mountain. But the mountain's still there. And I think today we need to ask the Lord, Lord, move the mountain and give me the faith to believe you can move this mountain. You can level this mountain. So maybe you're facing a mountain today. It's an impossible odds. It's an obstacle. It's a hindrance. It's something that's holding you back. I want you, when you take the bread and you drink the juice, to tell the Lord, God, move this mountain. Ask the Lord to move that mountain. And ask the Lord to give you the faith to believe he can. Also, as you're you're taking communion, I want you to consider just what the Lord is asking for you, what he's calling us, each of us to do, and that you would ask for his anointing, that you would believe that what he started, he's gonna finish. And so let's do those two things. If you'll take the bread with me, we're going to pray. It says in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Would you take the bread with me? And now the cup. Let's prepare. In the same way, after supper... He took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this beautiful season of Christmas. And Jesus, we thank you that you were willing to come and be born in a humble manger so that you could save the world. And so, Lord, we come before you today, and there are those of us here, we have a mountain in our way. It's an obstacle. It's impossible. So we ask you, by the power of your blood, to move this mountain. And we ask your Holy Spirit's anointing upon us to do what you've called us to do. Whatever ministry, whatever task, whatever job, whatever responsibility you've given us, Lord, you started it, you'll complete it. 
Anoint us by your Holy Spirit as we partake of this juice, Lord. Anoint us by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me today? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Thank you for tuning in today. We are so excited that you joined us. If you chose to say yes to Christ today, we would love for you to text the word born again, all one word to 94090. By doing so, you will receive more information on your next steps in following Christ. We meet every Sunday at 8.30 and 11 a.m. right here in Bakersfield, California at 4901 California Avenue. We would love for you to join us in person. Also, we have a live stream service at 11 a.m. every Sunday morning. You can find us on YouTube and Facebook. If you'd like more information about Bakersfield First Assembly of God, you can search us on the internet at bakersfieldfirst.com. Thank you for joining us today and have a blessed week.